Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, let's talk about all the housing measures that we're seeing coming from all levels of government here now, especially the B.C. government and the federal government here. Now, we had yesterday the budget update from Federal Finance Minister Christian Freeland. And as expected here, joining the crackdown on Airbnb. Now, this really started in British Columbia. You had the B.C. government here drop the hammer down on Airbnb. You would only allow to, you only allowed to rent out your principal residence on a short-term rental platform like Airbnb or Verbo. The federal government here now uh, taking a page from this. They said they were inspired by what British Columbia was doing. They have now brought uh, tax measures, punitive tax measures down now on Airbnb operators. Got Jay Cooper standing by to discuss this now. First, let's have a listen first here to the finance minister, Krista Freeland, and why she's bringing the hammer down here on Airbnb. Have a listen. We know that short-term rentals through sites like Airbnb and Verbo mean fewer homes for Canadians to rent and live in full-time especially in urban and populated areas of our country. That is why our government is actively examining what options and tools exist at the federal level to ensure more short-term rentals are made available as long-term rentals. Okay, Christian Freeland, and in her budget update yesterday, uh, she did follow through on those threats there. So new tax measures laid out yesterday. Airbnb operators would be unable to write off expenses of running an Airbnb, like strata fees or mortgage rates or mortgage costs, for example, in cities where Airbnb is restricted. Let's discuss this and lots more housing issues with my guest, Jay Cooper. Jay is a realtor. JayCooper.com is his website. He's very popular on social media, a podcaster. Hey, Jay, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks, Mike, for having me. Great. Okay, what do you think of the crackdown here on Airbnb? So this is growing here now. Started in BC. Here comes the federal government. We've had municipal governments cracking down on short-term rentals as well. Do you think this is going to make much of a difference, free up a lot of homes for people? No. So it all started with the ban on short-term rentals on primary residences. This comes into effect May 2024. Um as of January 1st, now the federal government, like you say, is going to deny income tax deductions for expenses incurred uh, on short-term rental. Um, let's just take a backtrack here. Why are investors interested in short-term rental? Why is short-term rental a problem? It all comes back to the BC NDP rent control. So it used to be 2% plus inflation. You could raise uh, the rents every month, uh, year. 
Then we had through 2020 and 2021, we had a rent freeze through the pandemic during a time when we had 8% inflation. And I can tell you taxes, insurance, strata were going up more than 8% into the double digits. So what happened is investors pivoted. Uh, many of them cashed out. They've made their money. They've cashed out. And I continue to see these tenanted units. These investors are now cashing out of these. Uh, the other thing they've done is they've moved into the uh, short-term rental market in order to avoid these rent controls. So in many ways, this NDP government created this lucrative uh, short-term rental market. Now they want to crack down on it. Yeah, okay. I've heard this a lot from landlords who feel that the playing field has been tilted against them. And you can't deny that this NDP government has changed the law on tenancy rules in British Columbia more in favor of the tenant. Jay, what are you hearing from, from landlords? Do they think this has gone, it's gone too far? I mean, you also mentioned the rent restrictions that we've seen over several years now. What are you hearing from landlords? What are they telling you? They're, they're fed up um, in the rental market at a time when we need to be building more rentals. Um, the, the rental market is drying up and pretty soon it's not going to be about affordable rental. There just simply won't be a rental market in BC. Um, you know, being a landlord, I know you'll get these guys on here saying housing is a human right and everybody deserves a free house. The reality is this is a business. Uh, and if you create a hostile business environment, which is what this government's doing this liberal NDP coalition, uh, you're going to create huge, huge problems. Um, right now, so they've pushed, the NDP thinks they've pushed about 16,800 units into the short-term rental market. They want those back in the long-term market. But I can tell you, it's not going to happen because, you know, investors are not interested. They've been burned now. They've, they've, they've expropriated their property rights. They've given all the rights to the tenant and again, it's just an extremely hostile business environment for anybody uh, trying to be a landlord or start a business in, in BC. Okay, well, if the government, though, so you think that's why a lot of a lot of homeowners have moved into Airbnb instead, so they can get away from these from the uh, tenancy rules. So that's why they said, Absolutely. well, to hell to hell with it, I'll rent it out on Airbnb instead. Okay, so now you've got both levels of government and municipal governments now bringing in these very tough restrictions on Airbnb. What do you think land uh, homeowners will do now? Will they just they'll have to rent it out long term, won't they? What else are they going to do? Most likely, the ones that haven't cashed out will begin to cash out of the market. They've made their money. Many of them are sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars in capital gains. They're just going to wash their hands of the whole thing. They want nothing. They do not want to do business with the NDP and this liberal government. And as a side note here, you know we're talking about 16,800 units, even if they did deliver that back into the long-term rental market. Here's the big picture. According to the CMHC, we need 3.5 million new homes built in Canada by 2030. In 2023, we only had 260,000 housing starts. So we have a huge shortfall of supply. And this regulation and, and, and the 16,000, 17,000 units, whatever that may be, it's a drop in the bucket. It's not going to have any impact. Speaking to Jay Cooper, Jay is a realtor, jaycooper.com. He's a real real estate broadcast uh, podcaster. Hey, Jay, let's talk about the housing that we need. I think everyone can agree 
we need more housing. No matter what side you're on, everybody realizes there's a housing shortage. So we need a lot more stuff. We need more housing for sure. So here's the question now. Who is going to build this? I thought this was interesting this week. Uh, Premier David Eby speaking at a housing conference saying, we can't let the private sector solve our problems here. The private sector is not going to get us out of this mess. We need the government here to come riding to the rescue and build the housing. And we're not talking just maybe low-income social housing. He's also talking about government building middle-class housing, so middle-income earners could buy a house, I guess, from the government. Let's have a listen Mm -hmm. to David Eby here speaking at this conference. Now, listen to what he says here. He says the government basically scouring the province for land to build housing. Have a listen. We are acquiring properties. We are looking, we did an inventory of every property across the province that that the province owns. We asked school, we passed a law to require school boards to do an inventory of the properties that they own and provide that information to government. Health authorities, cities, everybody is looking, what land do we have? Okay, health authorities, school boards, municipalities, they've all been ordered to look for land. Creating a land a, a land inventory here, I guess, where the government can start building housing. Jay, yeah. what do you think of this now? Who should build this housing? Should it be the, the government or should it be the private sector? Well, I mean, I wish them all the best. Good luck with that. But the reality is when we're talking about three and a half million new homes getting constructed uh, by 2030, the government cannot build on that kind of scale. You need to unleash the free enterprise market system and build the millions of homes that we need in Canada. And you, the government can't do it. He's he, This guy's dreaming in technicolor. Why don't you think the government can do it? Oh, you know, that's that's a whole other discussion here. Um, well, if we, this if we is look a real back, this is go ahead. Well, let's go back. Let's go back a few years. Let's let's play a yeah. clipper. Let's go back in the time machine here. Now, if you remember back in 2017, John Horgan, then the NDP leader, he promised that the B.C. government would build a ton of housing here over the next 10 years. Now, this is we're six years into this now. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. Here's Horgan back in 2017. Over the past two years, the average house in Vancouver has gone up over $600,000. How you address that is bring on more housing supply. Building more houses will bring down the price over time. So our plan calls for 114,000 new housing units to be built over the next 10 years. Okay, 114,000 new housing units the government would build over 10 years. Now that was six years ago. How are we doing so far? Well, we look up the recent, most recent provincial budget back in the spring. Uh, they reported that BC Housing had completed 15,783 housing units since 2017, plus 2,876 units of student housing. So that is 18,659 built so far, which works out to a little over 16% of the 114,000 housing units that were promised back in 2017. Now, Jay, 
What do you think of that progress? Now, if the government was here right now, in fairness to them, they would say, well, hang on, we got a whole bunch more we're building right, that we're working on here right now. There's going to be a lot more. Don't worry. But six mm-hmm. years into this, man, we're not, <laughs> we're still a long ways off. But your thoughts? It's just a long list of empty promises by these governments pandering for votes. That's that's all this is. You know, you need to be creating a a, um, a business friendly environment. You need to be incentivizing new constructions. Get rid of the GST. Get rid of the PST. Uh, start streamlining the approval processes. Um, you know, we've got the arduous approval processes in in uh, Vancouver. Hopefully, that's changing with the new mayor. But um, takes a long time to get something built. But you need the free market enterprise system to get involved in this. And uh, right now it's hard. You know, you've got uh, elevated construction costs. We've got labor shortages. It's uh, it's a tough one. Jay, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on this today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Right. Let's talk about these overcrowded schools in Surrey now. Now, the Surrey School District, it's already massive, right? 80,000 students there in the district. Typical enrollment growth in past years, especially pre-COVID, it was around 800 kids a year. That, that was the typical enrollment growth in Surrey, and that was pretty consistent over about 10 years. 800 new kids a year. Take a look at recent years. 2,500 a year. You got an explosion in enrollment in the Surrey School District. Schools are overcrowded. They are bursting at the seams. They are bringing in portables. The province bringing in pre-modular buildings now to house kids. And now we've got some of these ideas have been put on the table for parents to consider by the school district could you have summer school all year long all year round schooling have kids go to school in the summer maybe you'd have kids going to school in shifts could you see students in class until eight o'clock at night got tara hool standing by to discuss this now first have a listen to retender matthew here spokesperson for the surrey school district some of our schools are so over capacity, we've actually closed in catchment. So you could move in right across from a school and you wouldn't be able to register your child there because the school is so over capacity. We've reached the point where we don't have any more space for students, so we need to look at some additional strategies. Yeah, they're looking at additional strategies, and those include having a year-round semester system, could see some students in school all summer, maybe a break between grades at different times a year, You could have some kids doing online learning at times. All of this now being considered in Surrey because of the growing enrollment there. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tara Hull. Tara is an education advocate. I'm always pleased to have her here. Hi, Tara. Thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Nice talking to you, Mike. It's nice to have you back. What do you think of this situation here in Surrey? Man, these schools are just uh, bursting here. Your thoughts? Wow, what a mess. Um, yes, it's it's just one more item for the burn pile that our education system has become, unfortunately, in British Columbia. Um, you know, this fiasco might didn't happen overnight. Um, this took years of government incompetence and wasted spending, um, you know, to get to this level. And, and, and the cupboard is just basically bare right now, which is why schools can't be built. Um, Les Lane did a great feature um, at the Times columnist uh, a few days ago, and he said that um, when the NDP took power four years ago, 
the then education minister, Rob Fleming, he actually pledged to reduce the number of portables and set out a four-year timeline to do so. Um, that was then when Surrey had about 325 portables, and now it's jumped to 361. Um, and it's not only Surrey that's seeing this kind of um, issue that we're having. Uh, we've got now about 2,116 across the province. So um, I also just want people to understand that for every dollar that's spent in education in British Columbia, um, almost 90% of that, like 90 cents to the dollar is allocated strictly to salaries and benefits, okay, no matter what. So for those thinking that if we just had more money, we could build more schools, there's no amount of additional funding which will which will fix this problem, all right? Not, and it also won't be able to reach your child to give them the support they require in the classroom based on this on this funding model. So um, all of the overages over the years, yeah, such as the allocation of the millions more every year now that we have to spend on the class size ruling, and this recent uh, salary negotiation that was done with the BCTF was above and beyond what it had been in the past. It now means that the capital spending has been reduced. And not only that, who's going to build them? What people are yeah. going to be building? you know, these um, these new um, schools and who's going to work in them? We keep hearing about a teacher shortage in British Columbia. So, how, we, you know, it, it's just none of these solutions are viable. And I understand the frustration that parents are feeling because these three options that they have for students, it's ridiculous. And the, the province knows that. I mean, I, I, I would I bring the popcorn to come and see them try to negotiate with the BCTF that tells their membership that they now have to work year round or, you know, work until eight o'clock at night. Yeah. That's just not ever happened. Yeah. And, the you know, so I just think that the options there, um, people just need to understand that the province isn't working for you. They've turned their backs on you. And it's now up to the people to say, we need to talk about some other options under the public banner. Like school choice is the only way forward to help alleviate some of the stress. And this is a very simple fix that can be done by anybody in government to change the legislation to allow that conversation to start, as well as offering some relief for parents so that they can start up some micro schools or they can start up some neighborhood schools, along with, you know, maybe helping out with some more private independent schools because of this mm. problem in Surrey is not going to go away. Okay. Let me play a clip here for you, Tara, for your thoughts. Now, I had Gary Timoshuk on the show uh, a short time ago. He's the vice chair of the Surrey School Board. And we talked about what they need in terms of new schools. We've got a growing number of portables there. We've got these extreme ideas being put on the table here for parents to consider in Surrey because the school system can't handle all these new kids. And I asked him, what do you need in Surrey? His answer kind of surprised me here. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. For us, projecting over the next five years, to answer your question about what do we need, we need more schools, of course, but it's yeah. to the tune of three, $3.1 billion. And so several new schools, additions to 22 existing schools. It's a lot of work that we need to do in order to uh, eliminate those portables or at least reduce them. $3.1 billion? Holy smokes. Like, over what period of time would that be? That would be a five-year term. Over five, the next five years, that's what we need. $3.1 billion over five years for new schools in, in Surrey. Tara, this is not going to happen. That we're not, I don't think we're going to see that kind of expenditure. Is this, like, what do you think? It seems to me like this is just poor planning. Like, we have seen brand-new schools open in Surrey recently 
that already have portables, brand right. new and schools, we, and, there's, and they're not big enough. Your thoughts? Yes, well, in, and we also have another district here on the island, just uh, west of Victoria in Langford, and it's showing the same kind of exponential growth in terms of housing and in terms of people moving in, but exactly the same issue there, where they're seeing schools opening up and they're already overflowing. So it is, it's more than poor planning. This is just, this is typical government incompetence in solving anything that's meaningful right now in, in this province. And for the life of me, I do not understand why people continue to support that when there are other viable options available to them. We have the highest percentage of, of kids going to either independent or private schools in BC than any other province across Canada, percentage-wise. And there's a reason for that. It's because when you try to scream at an immovable object, it won't move. And so it is up to the people of Surrey. You must become, at this point, more proactive in your child's education. You must demand. You have the, you have the education critic, Eleanor Sturko, mm. that lives in your writing. Why hasn't she done anything? This is her only job she has as an education critic. It doesn't matter what they say. What they do is what's important. And you must, as a citizen, demand that they move this and that they change the legislation so that the real work can begin to alleviate the situation, which is happening not only in Surrey, but province-wide. Okay, speaking of Tara Hool about overcrowded schools in Surrey, well... The school district says, and the province says, they are trying to do something about the situation. The province has said they will add 875 new spaces for Surrey kids within the next year. And they will do that with prefabricated modular buildings. So these are kind of a, a new type of portable, basically, prefabricated wow. modular buildings that they will add more, basically more portables is is the answer here now in addition to that we have the school district as we've been discussing considering these other ideas year-round schooling kids going to class in shifts maybe some students in class until eight o'clock at night now have a listen to the education minister here now uh, rakna singh she was asked about these ideas what about kids going to class until eight o'clock in the city of Surrey. What does she think about that idea? You'll hear the reporter ask her the question. Listen to her answer here. Do you think those are acceptable solutions? This is just a, a, this is a consultation. I'm, I'm glad, happy to see that the consultation is happening with the parents and looking at different ideas. Okay, so she's happy to see the consultation. She's happy to see these different ideas being put on the table. Tara, I know you're saying that we should be thinking bigger and even bigger reform here, but... In the interim, when we're talking about a situation where the, the the schools are absolutely packed, I mean, they've got to do something, right? What do you think of some of these ideas? What do you think of the idea of, of kids going to class at night until 8 o'clock at night? What kind, of love, what, what kind of impact would that have on student learning, do you think? Well, we already know that with the hybrid learning model, um, you know, like in the classroom, based on very scant data that we already have, um, because this province doesn't believe in keeping anything meaningful when it comes to that. Um, so the learning loss in other provinces indicated that there's at least a 20 to 30 percent learning loss within the, the time you know, of the year that they were at home learning. So, I mean, it's, it's already adding to an abysmal learning, um, you know, area. Um, and the, but the bigger question I have is why are the kids being punished for the problems that the grownups themselves created? I mean, yeah. it, and again, the, a lot of these issues, I mean, the, the reform that I'm talking about won't take years and years to do it. You can start tomorrow. 
I mean, you can create a micro school in your own neighborhood. I mean, there's funding available for that. There's, but but mm. parents have to be the ones to be proactive about that. Um, you know, there's there's lots of different ways that kids, um, that parents and other people, uh, educators can set up a school in um, in a rec center or in a church or in a lot of other different places. But the model itself that the existing public education system has is yeah. broken. It's what do just, you- it's an and, and I'll just say one more thing. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, in terms of sure. the building, I mean, we have overages basically in every school that the NDP or that the province has ever built. Like Hamburg Secondary in Vancouver, the projects are notoriously notoriously late. They're widely over budget and added again more debt to the taxpayer. It's not fair to them. What do you think? Hey, Tara, last question for you. We have, of course, a, a private school system here, an independent school system in, in British Columbia as well. It does receive public funding. I know you've heard the arguments from people who say that shouldn't happen. There shouldn't be any public money that is directed into independent or, or private schools. What do you think of that of that argument? Should the private schools, the independent schools continue to receive public funding? Well, of course they should, because it alleviates the pressure on the public system. And it actually keeps the cost down for the public system by having that option. Um, and I, and again, it's not even that. I mean, the private system, you know, I think parents, they should have the ability to put their kids in wherever they, they see fit. But I think this this over demand always of getting the, um, you know, screaming at the government to fix this problem, it needs to end. And parents need to be a lot more um, proactive in terms of seeking out the best alternatives for their kids. And dem- and the easiest way is, is through change in legislation. Tara, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And happy Thanksgiving to my family and friends in the United States today. Appreciate that. Let's talk about your work-life balance here. This is so important to so many people right now. A lot of people overwork, stressed out, especially in the wired world that we live in right now. Think about the smartphone and how that has changed our lives here. You're basically on call 24-7 now with the smartphone, right? A lot of people... You know, they end up working off the clock if they're looking at that phone, checking emails, sending text messages. Can your boss force you to do that? Let's say your boss says, okay, once the workday has ended, I expect you to be checking your email. I expect you to be checking your text messages. Maybe you'll be required to send a text message or reply to an email at work. Can your boss legally do that? And if they do ask you to check emails and text messages at night, should you be paid for that? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Richard Johnson. Richard is an employment lawyer, Ascent Employment Law, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Richard, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. So what is the answer to that question now? If, if your boss says to you, look, I, I know your work day ends at 5 o'clock, but, you know, occasionally you may have a, a, an email or a text message to respond to. Can your boss force you to do that? No, your boss cannot force you oh. to work overtime, but practically there can be ramifications down the road if you do refuse. And if there's an emergency circumstance, that's when your boss can say, look, we need, we need all people at the, uh, at the wheel, so we've got to have you work. Yeah. How common is that? I mean, it, it seems like with the advent of the smartphone and the way it works now, I mean, if, if people are like me, I'm kind of glancing at that phone all the time automatically. 
and you end up you end up sort of working. But do are, do you hear that a lot from your clients from from employees who are concerned about that? Absolutely, it's a massive issue right now, especially with the blending between work and non work life. And uh, when we look at that situation, employers can't get away with not paying overtime or not paying wages for that time that somebody's working. Um, if they knew or ought to know that the employee's working. And that's really the test. Yeah. And how would that overtime work? Okay. So let's say your boss says, look, I'm going to expect you to occasionally reply to some emails in the evening or whatever. Would you be, would you then be uh, eligible to get like time and a half? Like how would that work? Yeah, great question. So managers generally don't get overtime. So if the manager is responding to emails and taking care of things, they generally are overtime exempt. They don't get it. However, non-managerial employees, let's say you're answering an email at you know eight o'clock at night and you're working for a bit. If you've already worked eight hours that day, you get time and a half. Mm. And if you go yeah. over 40 hours in a week, you get time and a half. And so overtime can apply for those those emails back and forth and tending to things outside of hours if you're a non-managerial employee. Yeah. Do you think some employees are a little intimidated by the situation? Like if they have a job they like, maybe they maybe they are being asked to send some emails or check text messages after work and they might be a little reluctant to pipe up and complain to their boss. Do you do you encourage people to state how they're feeling if they feel they're being treated unfairly you should say so i do and i but i think it is this state of affairs where employees are really reticent to step up and there's kind of this understanding like eh, give a little get a little and so there's kind of a mutual understanding that employees will do a bit of that work on the side and maybe their boss will give them a couple hours off here and there and it's important to realize you can't waive your employment standards rights as an employee so even if you've got that kind of catch-as-can arrangement it yeah. doesn't get around the employer's obligation to be watching office, watching hours of work and paying overtime. Okay, let's say you are applying for a new job. You're in an interview process. Do you think this is something that could be made clear? Like, let's say you care very deeply about the, the work-life balance. You don't want to get burned out. You don't want to get overworked. Is that something you could bring up with an employer and say, look, how does this work now if I have, maybe I might even have a company provided cell phone. If I'm getting calls or text messages or emails after work, am I required to answer this? Is that something that the employee should make sure that is clearly understood? Yeah, um, I, I take a very practical approach. And so I'd be cautious about going into an interview and making it seem like you're, you know, putting the brakes on certain things, because I think that'll signal to the employer, eh, maybe not our person, right? I think, but there are lots of ways to get to the same point. Most employers would put a written employment agreement in front of you and say, these are the terms. That's your opportunity to make sure you're covered off for overtime. Okay, in, so, a, like, in like a contract? That's right. And so if there's a written document that's going to dictate, you know, how many hours you're going to work in the day and what the expectations are outside of work hours, that's a chance for you without seeming like you're resistant to to kind of negotiate uh, some of those arrangements to have good balance in your life. Speaking to Richard Johnson, Ascent Employment Law, uh, work-life balance. You were mentioning, Richard, how this is a huge issue right now. A lot of people experiencing overwork, burnout. It's it's a big priority for a lot of people in their working lives right now. Um, Do you think that a lot of employers 
uh, don't understand that or maybe not as sensitive as they should be to making sure that their employees or their mental health is being cared for in the in the working life? Because if you work someone, if you overwork someone, you burn someone out. I mean, that's not good for business. Are your thoughts? Absolutely. And there's a provision in the Employment Standards Act that says you can't force people to work when it's detrimental to their health. And so I think it's one of these situations where employers assume the employee is going to pipe up, that they're going to say something. But it's really turning a blind eye. If you see your employee responding to emails at eight o'clock at night when they work regular nine to fives, the employer needs to be accountable for that. And frankly, it's a newer ought to know standard. So if the employee employer can judge from the circumstances that your people are working late at night or on weekends, they ought to be paying overtime or making arrangements to provide these people the equivalent time off. Because otherwise you're right, the practical ramification is going to be burnout, um, lack of productivity, maybe medical leaves. It's not good for anybody. Yeah. Let me play a clip here for you. This really jumped out at me. Get your thoughts here. This is sort of a social media video that went kind of viral recently. A very prominent American business consultant. His name is Gary V. And he was speaking at a conference about how to run a healthy workplace, how to get the most out of your employees. And a guy in the audience stands up and says, I have basically terrible employees. I have to keep firing them and hiring new people. And then I've got to fire them and hire new people because they don't, they don't want to work. And listen to, listen to this consultant's response to him here. Kind of put him in his place here. Let's listen. Try hiring, firing, hiring, firing. And no one just wants to do the job, Gary. Is it me that yes. I'm not giving, isn't, I'm not giving the job properly? It's 100% you. Even the way that you're casting judgment on your employees already makes me know that you're not a good leader. I'm trying to be one, but. I believe you, but the answer is it's you. The number one mistake is we expect our employees to work hard, but the problem is they don't own the business. You can't ask an employee to work as hard as you or you create a fake expectation versus how much you compensate them. You work for them, they don't work for you. And so the biggest mistake people make and why they can't build scalable businesses is they have selfish expectations of their employees. Okay, okay. I thought that was fascinating that a lot of employers have selfish expectations of their workers. And the way he put it there, Richard, for your thoughts, he said, look, what the mistake you're making is that you expect the employees to work as hard as you, the person who owns the business, they don't own the business. So you've got to come at it from a different, I guess, I guess different thought process here. Speaking to a, a guy who had just hired and fired people over and over again, because none of his workers will do the job that he, to his satisfaction. Richard, what oh, are your I thoughts find a nickel on that? for every time. Sorry. Yeah. If I had a nickel for every time I heard this complaint, wow, they don't work like we did when we were coming up through the ranks. Yeah. It is a different workforce. It's a different mode of working. It's not worse. It's not better. Um, well, maybe it is actually better for people's people's health and welfare. But at the end of the day, I would always encourage my employer clients, instead of having 50 people working full tilt and killing themselves, get 75 people who are actually working manageable, sustainable days, and you are going to just do such a better job in the market You'll be more productive, you'll have higher revenues, and you're also going to have people that appreciate that there are boundaries in place to protect them. Yeah. And what about that? Let's say people are experiencing burnout, overwork, maybe their mental health is suffering because of their job. 
what would be what kind of recourse would they have under employment law here in BC? I love that question. Thanks for taking us there because you've got two areas of recourse. Number one is if you stand up and say under employment standards, I need to have manageable work hours. It can't be detrimental to my health and safety. You can't be disciplined or retaliated against under the Employment Standards Act. You can be you can actually file a complaint for that. Number two, if you have the need for stress leave, medical leaves of some kind, the employer under human rights legislation, the human rights code, They've got to accommodate that. So you've got two really solid pieces of legislation you can rely on as an employee, and you can't waive those. They're absolute fundamentals at law. Okay, we're talking about work-life balance, your mental health at work. How hard can your boss force you to work? What options do you have if you feel you're being treated unfairly? My guest is Richard Johnson, Ascent Employment Law. Let's go to your phone calls here. Shannon and Langley. Hi, Shannon. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I work in the construction sales business, and I used to work for a, they're a billion-dollar company based out of Saskatchewan, and the one of the owners said to me one day, um, I said, good salesmen are hard to find, and I was in my 50s, and he said to me, well, you know what? I can fire your ass, and I can hire a kid from Future Shop to replace you. And the same company, yeah, the same company, and I give them that opportunity six weeks later, I quit. And (laughs) um, that same company, they have this way of, uh, you find your own holiday pay when you work for them. Because Mm. what they do is on your commissions, like you get, it's about 80, 20 commission versus base salary. And what they do is they they say you earn a thousand dollars commission. Well, they take 6% out of it, put it on the bottom of the page as vacation pay. So they don't actually pay you the thousand; they only pay you nine forty. And I took them to court, cost me over twenty thousand uh, dollars, which I won, and I got a nine thousand dollar holiday paycheck. I'm the only guy that's worked for this company in the province of BC to ever get his holiday pay, and they do it to this day. And, and the BC Labor Board doesn't do anything about it. Shannon, thank you for the call. Thank you for sharing that story. I'm glad you stood up for yourself there. Richard, yeah, it's interesting. You have a boss say to this guy, "I could fire you tomorrow and replace you with with a kid." What do you think of that sort of um, management acumen? I, in my opinion, it's a horrible way to run your business, and in fact, it doesn't it doesn't jive with what today's workforce is is looking for. So you're just going to lose talent. And with places like Glassdoor, where people can post reviews, it is going to spread like wildfire. Nobody's going to want to work for you. Wow, Glassdoor. So that's where you can, what, review your boss? Exactly. And that's only one site. But people can go on these days and post reviews of what their work experience is or was. And Mm -hmm. employees looking for jobs these days are reviewing their potential employers before they even take an offer. Yeah, That's a great point. George in Coquitlam. Hi, George. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Listen, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I worked in the financial field. And uh, we were trained as uh, managers to be, the boss would come in and say, hey, listen, uh, we're all working past five, we're going to buy pizza. Well, I said, I'm going home to my wife and kids. He said, you go home, don't come back. I mean, that was the pressure. And they used to say, well, you're going to be management, so you have to put in these extra hours. What a bunch of garbage. Mm -hmm. I took them to court and I won. So uh, what I'm saying to you is the pressure out there, in, in working for corporations, they use that tactic, and they tell you your furniture, you can be moved. 
George, thank you for the call. We just got 30 seconds left here. Richard, what, what's the bottom line it for me here? People should know their rights and not let themselves be pushed around. Yeah, that's my opinion. And fr- frankly, you don't want to work for a business that's going to take advantage on those occasions because it's just going to keep happening. So I would urge people to look for places that really respect their employees. And you'll tell from the outset, it's a different work environment. That stuff doesn't fly. You can't waive your rights. File complaints if you need to. And you can do that while you're employed, by the way. So if your employer's you know, being difficult with you, you can maintain your rights while you're working and earning, an, uh, earning a living. Richard, thank you for coming on today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.